Welcome to episode 83 of Love That Album. The year is 1969 and the pop music scene is full of sounds not conceived only a few years prior. Psychedelic rock, funk, hard rock and southern soul were all part of the popular landscape. Pop chanteuse Dusty Springfield released her fifth album in March of that year called Dusty in Memphis on Atlantic Records with the same rhythm section who'd played for her idol Aretha Franklin. Morris is joined by Shannon Hurley, aka Numbers Girl from the all-time Top 10 podcast to discuss a little of the history leading up to the album as well as their thoughts on the music track by track. They ask questions like whether it really qualifies as a soul album, where was Randy Newman's cynical touch when writing his tunes for this record, and does the orchestration on the album do for Dusty and Memphis what Phil Spector's orchestration did for Let It Be? Morris also discusses with Shannon about her own musical activities and is honoured to present the world debut of her new song, You and Me in the Summer, as part of the duo Lovers and Poets with her husband, Ben Eisen. Eric Reanimator also gets into the female singer vibe by talking about She Talks to Rainbows by ex-Ronette Ronnie Spector. Of course, keeping close to Eric's heart, she covers some punk tunes and the EP is produced by Joey Ramone. All this and more on episode 83 of Love That Album. Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? You're listening to episode, what is it, 83, I think. Yeah, it is. Episode 83 of the Love That Album podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. If this is the first time you're listening, I, I welcome you on board. I'm flattered and I'm honoured that you're uh, choosing to listen to this podcast. The point behind this podcast is, well, you've heard the name, Love That Album. I talk about an album that I love. That's the idea. And what I like to do on this show is I like to invite another person, shoot the shit, chew the <laughs> cud. Oh, I, don't, I don't know. Oh, I'm, chew the cud is good. Chew the cud. <laughs> chew the fat about, about, uh, about the album with me because talking about it by myself, I could not think of anything more boring. So I always like to have a guest on and I'm very excited because I have a first timer. I love first timers, hopefully a return timer. But this is someone who has a remote connection to the show because her husband has been on the program three times. However, she is a person inside herself, and this is, <laughs> you know her as Numbers Girl. If you've listened to the all-time top 10 podcast, we know her as Shannon Hurley. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm, I'm doing my best Numbers Girl impression right now. Please Number do it. Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Do it again. Number seven. <laughs> oh, right. you do that so well. <laughs> It's very good to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Morris. Uh, it's, it's completely my honor to have you on the show. Now, for those of you who 
have not listened to all-time top 10. And why aren't you listening to all-time top 10? Shannon, the whole purpose of the all-time top 10 podcast, Ben goes and counts down top 10 songs about death top 10s and it is morbid month on the program yes it is so it's you know, i've just listened to the all-time top 10 songs about death volume 2 but oh, all-time all top 10 songs about working in the backyard all-time top 10 songs about <laughs> sex all-time top 10 songs about summer uh, summer i loved that episode that was one of my favorites uh, did you uh, listen to that one? I did. I did. Look, I love songs about summer, so that was a no-brainer. Look, I've listened to about 90% of the shows. I think, you know, when there's an all-time top <laughs> singing songs about death metal, well, maybe, oh, yeah, not so much. Yeah, yeah. Right, I, I understand. Even those, though, they surprise me. Sometimes I'll tell Ben, look, I don't know if I want to listen to this one. And he'll say, just give it a chance. And I do. And I always come away from it, you know, with a really good heart and like, oh, okay, that was wonderful. I discovered something I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So, but let's talk a little bit about you because we've been speaking about Ben and his program. So, but let's talk a little bit about you. So you're a musician in your own right. And I know that at yes. the moment you have both your solo work, but you also do some stuff with Ben in a duo. You call yourselves Lovers and Poets. So tell us a little bit about Lovers and Poets first. Sure. Um, that became a project in 2009 um, when I was living in Nashville. Mm -hmm. uh, it originally started with another person. Um, I answered a Craigslist ad uh, for somebody who needed a vocalist and somebody who would uh, be able to help write some songs. Mm -hmm. And so I became uh, a partner with Brian Talbot in Nashville. Okay. Uh, eventually, we, we did a few songs together. Um, I had come up with a name. Uh, we had some creative differences, and so he let me keep the name. <laughs> uh. And so uh, then I formed a partnership with Ben, who was you know playing bass on everything anyway. Uh, so then we released our uh, debut album in 2010 for Lovers and Poets. And we've been steadily working on things like getting placements on TV shows uh, with, with that project. Wow. And we're writing stuff for a new album, and we have a few songs that we've we are in the process of releasing. Uh -huh, right. So. Well, we'll be playing one of those songs in in just a few minutes. Um, World premiere. Oh, my podcast got a premiere! Yay! I don't think I've had a premiere song on, on uh, this show. Wow! So, uh, so it's truly my honor. Um, and you have some stuff that you've released in your own name as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have four albums um, in my own name, and then I also do trance. Uh, top lines for producers around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's another little uh, interesting facet of working in the music industry right now is that you get to work with people all over the world. So yes. uh, it's been very fun. <laughs> well, so how how is it? What's your personal experience currently about you know working in the music industry? I mean, I know that you know with the nature of the beast being that uh, you know there's more in the way of downloads i mean is that making your job more difficult or do you find that you know you just find that the the technology is so exciting that you can work your way around things yeah like i, that? I actually the feel that the the technology is so exciting i would not want to be a musician in any other era actually i i'm such a control freak that i love being able to release songs when i want to yep. and that if i release it on Bandcamp, you get all of that money. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I, you don't have to worry about a label taking that. Um, so I just feel like it's a great time to be a musician. And yes, the payments for streaming are very low. Um, but I feel like the time for music discovery is the best that it's ever been also. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to be an independent musician, now is the time. And I still have all of my stuff up on Pandora, Spotify, any music discovery place that there is. 
um, because I feel like reaching those new fans is just so important that um, anybody who takes their music down um, from Spotify because they're trying to um, prove, you know, like show a point uh, that they're not going to take it. <laughs> I feel like they're the ones that are missing out. So just keep your music up, people, you know, mm -hmm. because it's the best way to go. You're going to get new fans uh, somehow. And those fans are going to listen to your music over and over. And whether it's a small payment on Spotify or if they decide to just download your whole album on Bandcamp, um, you know, for whatever price you want to put it up for, mm -hmm. um, you're, you know, you're in the business of music. So just do what you need to do. <laughs> and do you actually ever release any of your stuff on physical media? Yes, I do. Yeah, okay. I've released all my albums on physical CD. Okay. Right. Maybe Very someday it'll be vinyl. Who knows? Oh, well, that's, you know, that's vinyl is in apparently again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I just saw that there is a band that just released their new single on cassette tape. <laughs> oh, now, that's taking retro just a step too far. I know. Complete, <laughs> I with, were... complete with hiss and dolphin. Yeah, and I just, saw, yeah, I just saw the post on Twitter. It was a Pitchfork post. I'm like, oh, great, one of those bands. You know, funnily enough, like last night I got together with a friend just to have a, have a beer and eat pizza. And we watched, I think on TV, they were having Wayne's World 2. And there's a moment, I don't know, I, you, you've seen Wayne's World 2, obviously? Uh, I think so. Oh. I well, think the, the, there's a, there's a moment in it where um, the, the main the main character, or Wayne's girlfriend, Cassandra, says, "Oh, speaking with my uh, manager, Bobby." Uh, and he says, it's amazing how, you know, my album will never be released on vinyl. Isn't it amazing? They're not doing vinyl anymore. And this is you know, how many, 15, 20 years ago. And you watch this nowadays and you go, you know, smirk, smirk, smirk. You know, <laughs> it's come back. Exactly. More, it's come back. Oh, isn't it amazing? My songs will never be released on CD. Although, mind you, having said that, I think that the death of the CD has been greatly exaggerated. I like that. Yes, I do. Although, I mean, I have to say that once my... 2003 Honda Civic bites the dust and I, I no longer have a need for CDs then I you know that that may be the time that it happens yeah. for me so. no, I, I, I can't ever I, I'm known for this I'm loyal to uh, my CD collection I mean I've got that mm -hmm. much I can't, can't afford to uh, not so I'll always be loyal to the yeah. CD my CD player dies I buy another one that's <laughs> for as long as it's available. Anyway, look. Okay, and there's something about the artwork too, so it's good, you know. <laughs> um, so at this stage, we haven't actually sort of mentioned what it is that we're here to talk about. We're going to be discussing an album that came out in March 69, and that is Dusty in Memphis. Now, I know that this is uh, an album that you care for. I heard you mention so on an all-time top 10. So. It is near and dear to my heart. So we're going to be uh, discussing that. That's the focus of uh, this program. And later on in the show, Eric Reanimator is going to uh, join us again for his Album I Love segment. And this time around, he's going to be talking about a very interesting EP. And it's by Ronnie Spector, She of the Ronettes. Uh, wow. Discussing, discussing. It, it's only an EP, unfortunately. I hope it's still available out there. Uh, but I have vague recollections of actually seeing this one. It's produced by Joey Ramone. And oh my it's called it's called She Talks to Rainbows. She was a bit of a tough gal, so you know the, the fact that she's mm -hmm. being that a lot of these songs are actually covers of punk songs, and in a way that sort of makes sense. But uh, anyway, later on in the show, you'll get to hear what Eric has to say about uh, Ronnie, Ronnie Spector's EP. Uh, yeah, the, the little snippets that he plays, I do sound absolutely fantastic. And you get to hear what Eric has to say and put uh, the EP into some sort of historical context. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll go to a break. But what we're going to hear in the break 
is something very, very special. The world premiere on a podcast of the new track from Lovers and Poets, your uh, duet with Ben. Uh, yep. So talk to us about this uh, about this song, You and Me in the Summer. Give us a little bit of a background about it. Well, this, this song started very organically. Uh, we just did it all on Logic. Uh, and we just sat around, you know, one day and picked up an acoustic guitar and uh, just started layering instruments. And before we knew it, we had a song that came together very easily. Um, and I just love the the feeling that you get, you know, when you think of those summer songs. And so basically it was inspired by Ben's podcast, song, you know, the top 10 songs about summer. Right, okay. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it's one of the first tracks that we've worked together um, before, um, before I actually had an idea of the arrangement or anything like that. Usually I, I come to him and say, okay, um, can you lay down a bass part? And then I'll just like start working on the beats and stuff. But this track is very equal in that we each um, both came to it from exactly half of the perspective. So we both contributed um, equally to this track, which I'm really proud of too. So No, it's really, uh, really lovely. And, and as you say, it does have a very summery feel. And I, I think we were talking about Joe Jackson before we came uh, on to record and just that little piano motif at the high end of the piano, because that's something that he does. <laughs> He always plays like at the top end of the piano. That first thing I thought was, that sounds like a very Joe Jackson little note. Oh, wow. I don't know. So his influence crept in somehow. <laughs> Indeed. So you weren't even aware of that. Well, that's just, that's just my Jackson. perspective. <laughs> no, it just, it just sort of struck me. I'd be interested to know what other people who, uh, who uh, listen to this, what they think. But um, so yeah, it sounds like you, you hadn't intended that. But, but anytime I yeah. hear something played up at the top end, it just had that JJ feel about it. And I love that. It's wonderful. It's just, so it's, uh, anyway, you, the <laughs> listener you. out there, listen to this, the world premiere. I'm honored that, that uh, Shannon has allowed me to play this for you. I hope you dig it. And uh, later on in the show, uh, Shannon will give you some information at the end of the program. If uh, you like what you hear, how you can go about ordering the songs. And so afterwards, what we'll do is we'll uh, come back from break and we'll talk a little bit about Dusty in Memphis or maybe some of the historical context first. You're listening to Love That Album, Morris on this end and Shannon Hurley on that end. We'll be back shortly. Come rushing in 
Hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes Store. 
If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion. All time top 10. Top 10 cheesy love songs. This song showcases everything that is awesome about Journey. Bombastic, tailor-made for the arena. Everyone's got their lighter out. Steve Perry's got his beautiful mane of hair and he's singing about being on the road. Top 10 rock trios. Dinosaur Jr., Jay Mascus, and Lou Barlow, and drummer Murph. The loudest band I've ever seen. Top 10 songs about the devil. My number eight is not the greatest song in the world. <laughs> it's just a tribute. Um, this is Tenacious G. Top 10 breakup songs. What's your number four? I got to do um, the replacement's answering machine. Nice. Not only is it about the distance, he's using the distance as a metaphor, you know, sort of like where it's like the, the relationship's gotten to a point where he's trying to connect with somebody and the extent of the communication is leaving a message on your machine. Top 10 rock wordsmiths. Randy Newman. In a lot of his songs, he plays like a narrator, but the narrator in these songs tells stories, but the narrator doesn't always tell the truth or he has kind of a skewed version of the story he's telling. That's a human foible. That's what we tend to do. Top 10 sports anthems. A little ditty called Jump Around. Yes. Not. Easily like 20 to 30,000 students jumping up and down at the same time. It is awesome. Number 10. With your host, Ben Eisen. All time top 10. And we're back. Hope you folks out there Doug listening to uh, Lovers and Poets and their song You and Me in the Summer and as I said before um, Shannon will give some information at the end of the program as to uh, how you can order that track or anything else from her back catalogue there's uh, uh, quite a few albums as she's already gone and mentioned so got to plug 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 the uh, musical (laughs) endeavours of my guests Oh, you're so kind. No, not at all, not at all. I'm, I'm really, really thrilled to have you on, and, uh, and that's, that's actually a gorgeous song. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> so speaking about people who made lovely music, our uh, focus today is on uh, Dusty Springfield's album. From 1969, released on March 31st uh, in the U.S., is Dusty in Memphis at on the Atlantic Record label. So I thought what we'd do is we'd give a little bit of historical context, talk a little bit about Dusty Springfield uh, and her background and how she came to Dusty in Memphis. So she was born Mary Isabel Catherine Bernadette O'Brien. So I, I, I wonder mm-hmm. if there's a whole ton of aunts or, or grandmothers. Yeah, there's a lot of Catholic guilt behind that name, it sounds like. <laughs> we, don't want to, uh, we don't want to offend everyone. We've got to name, we've got to name check everyone in the family who's come before. Uh, <laughs> so she was born in 1939 in London. Uh, and allegedly, according to um, the, the University of uh, Google, she was given the nickname Dusty because she played football with the boys and was considered a tomboy. And you look at her and you, you just never would have considered her, really? She was a tomboy? I know. I mean, she's got that peroxide blonde bouffant and yes. she's known for, you know, the, creating this image, like cultivating this image of this just like sexy, you know, like swinging 60s London girl. Yes. Um, so you don't really think of her as a tomboy. Mm, but uh, you know these these images can be created. I, I guess that's a, a lot of what the music industry was about. We have to fashion this image for you, and I guess she was all too willing to go along with that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so she formed a trio, uh, a folk trio with her brother. Now, I, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce this, Dionysius. but Dionysus, most, yeah. Dion- I, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Who, who um, then became Tom. And they called themselves the Springfields. They started it up with, with a friend uh, whose name I have not made note of. But uh, so <laughs> Dusty and Tom Springfield, uh, they called themselves the Springfields. And by 1963, though, she'd gone solo and uh, ended up releasing a song to very Phil Spector-ish, I Only Want to Be With the next few years she you know, put out a bunch of very successful singles uh, including a Burt Bacharach song we'll be talking a little bit about Burt Bacharach later on in the show oh I love Burt Bacharach and so Hal David got, <laughs> uh, indeed they, they hand in glove uh, songs like Wishing and Hoping and I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself mm-hmm. uh, and where it becomes interesting for this show discussing about uh, Dusty was in 1965 she did a program bringing Motown music uh, to England via a TV show she, she did called The Sounds of Motown which even had the Funk Brothers and Martha Reeves and the Vandellas backing her up on the program mm-hmm. uh, that's crazy it, it is so it's sort of interesting that she ended up recording this album for uh for Atlantic rather than for Motown. Yes, yeah. If she had gone and recorded uh, the album for Motown, we would have been hearing it called Dusty in Detroit. The, the, <laughs> the D&D thing, it sort of makes a little bit more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, by 1968 or 1969, you know, pop music was going through a very different way to what Dusty Springfield was doing. And I've taken a note of a few albums that came out on the very same day Oh, Dusty. what do you have on your list? Okay, so look, I'm, I'm, I admit I'm being very selective because there were some other albums there that, oh, okay, well, this goes against the grain of what was going on in 1969 too. But the few that I chose to sort of contrast with what she was doing was there was James Brown's Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, <laughs> New Improved by Blue Cheer, mm-hmm. the self-titled album by The Velvet Underground, and wow, okay. At Your Birthday Party by Steppenwolf, all released on March 31st. 1969 so that's pretty much it's a long way from yeah uh, and and in fact i would say that she has more in common with james brown than she does with any of those other albums that were on that list (laughs) well yeah in a way i guess you know because she's going for the soul feel but in a way it's it's still a long way from what james brown's version of soul was from what you know she ended up with on this album and I, i know part of what i want to discuss with you is how much of this album really sort of fits the criteria of at least Southern Soul and you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 what the band was doing in Memphis. And we should also, I'll make mention of this more later on, but the album was only half recorded in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Be, yeah. But it'll be interesting just to sort of, you know, get your perspective on how much, whether this fits the criteria of Southern Soul, at least on, on, um, on some of the tracks. So anyway, she signed to Atlantic to produce this album, you know, which is the home of her hero. You know, her big hero is Aretha Franklin. And yeah. the contract said, I'll, we'll only do this only if Jerry Wexler is on board to produce. Uh-huh. And he was recording it with the Tom The great Dad. Jerry Wexler. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, have you read his biography? I have not. I, no. I, it's been about 
10, 15 years since I read it. I can't remember the name of it, but it was it was a fascinating read, you know, getting it from a producer's perspective. You know, I often tend to read, you know, musicians' biographies or, uh, you know, maybe by music journalists talking about a particular artist, but to get what his life was like as a producer and he everything he was a bit of a hard ass and he's a but he did he, he wrote about everything with a strong sense of humor and it was a fascinating read i wish i could remember the name of it, but it should be easy to find yeah yeah i will definitely read mm. that mm. Uh, so anyway, so look, it was that she got the contract and she recorded. Well, so the the band, the Memphis Cats, had already mm-hmm. gone and recorded the album in Memphis, uh, and she came <laughs> she came to Memphis and she you know we would have thought she'd have felt really at home in the environment and she hated it, so ended up recording she, all her vocals in New York City. She is notoriously insecure, and everything you've ever read about her, she's she was completely insecure about her vocals. And not even just on Dusty in Memphis, but on past albums, she had um, tried different things like locking herself in the bathroom and recording her vocals where she knew she could get like this crazy wet reverb mm-hmm. and still not being um, not being happy with it. So she was just really hard to please even for herself. She just she just couldn't do it. And she was really intimidated by that band. Mm. And so how strange it is that back in that day and age, you know, uh, Recording all the way in New York, far away from the band, as far as as far away from the orchestra and band as possible. You know, mm-hmm. just how just how crazy is that? Her, her in a vocal booth. Yeah, she just had to remove herself. She and she felt like she was going to be compared, you know, to to actual American soul, and she just she did not want to feel that pressure caving in on her. So. Um, and I think also she said that she had never recorded with just a rhythm track before. And so she felt nervous about the whole process. But in in the end, I mean, the, the album that she gave us was such a gift and so beautiful and just oozes with confidence and um, sultriness and emotion. And she really brought it for this album. Well, from, considering. What, from what I read, it took her like a year before she actually could sit down, listen to it and enjoy it. She spent that first year apparently hating it. Oh, I, I believe it. She just, she just has that, she had that mentality of nothing is going to be good enough. So, and I know that most singers don't want to listen to their own singing. And <laughs> I think it's a, it's a lead singer disease to right. not want to have to uh, actually listen to what was put down on tape, maybe. But from, you know, from what I've been reading about it, I don't think I've ever read, and I'm sure they're out there, but I don't think I'd ever read someone who was that not just that fussy but that insecure you sort of think well if you're that insecure about your voice why are you doing this for a profession Mm -hmm. surely surely you'd have to believe in yourself to some extent right well i think that i think that she knew she had a gift and Mm -hmm. she knew that she was she was good you know and and she knew she had something special but i just think sometimes those inner demons no matter what they are they just Sometimes they just take over control of your brain and that artist mm. uh, part of you is just, it's always an insecure little child. So, but yeah, it's very surprising how, you know, how she behaved in the recording studio considering how good she is. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you this. Do you know anything about, because based on what you just said there about she wasn't used to just sort of recording with a rhythm track and a lot of like her oldest stuff had been done with uh, with either orchestras or mm-hmm. certainly not conventional rock groups or, or rhythm sections or the like. So was the, do you know, was the orchestration her idea or was that... Uh... 
Oh, um, Joe Wexler's idea, or do, do you know? Oh, on that? on this on on this album, I believe it was not. Um, I think that maybe Gene Orloff, who is the conductor, mm-hmm. um, maybe he did the arrangement. But I, I think that her having to let go of control in the studio was a big deal because she had actually co-produced everything that she had done before, even though she wasn't really credited. Um, so she was letting go of all that control. And so just letting somebody else do the arrangements was, uh, it was really hard for her. <laughs> mm-hmm. So let me ask you, where, where is it that you come in to uh, Dusty Springfield's music? I, I mean, I'm guessing that you've still like, you know, been a big fan of her for a good chunk of your life, but do you have any recollections <laughs> where the first time that you heard oh, yeah. her, at least the first time where it <laughs> meant something to you? Well, I'm going to see if you can guess where it was because it was in the eighties. It was the late eighties. Pet shop uh, boys. It, yes, exactly. <laughs> That's what it was. And she did uh, What Have I Done to deserve, to deserve This with Pet Shop Boys. just that little cameo that she would have she goes since you went away um so that little part and i was like who is this wonderful singer with a smoky voice and um so then i i've always kept her, you know I, i've always known her name and i knew that she sang that song i guess maybe on the radio um you know i had heard things probably like um i only want to be with you mm. but then you know when pulp fiction came out um i was living in england at the time and my flatmate had the soundtrack and so i heard son of a preacher man for the first time um so that was my real introduction to dusty springfield then i had to work backwards and i started getting you know like her greatest hits and i think i had that for a long time and i started learning more about her and it was really sad like right when i started really getting into dusty springfield then i found out she died (laughs) it was like 1999 um so then that just kind of broke my heart um, and I felt like, okay, well, I'm just going to just keep, you know, learning as much as I can about Dusty Springfield. And um, eventually I, I got into her, a lot of her discography and, and I just, she just became one of my favorite singers. And yeah, that was my introduction and my life with Dusty so far. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, look, I, I tend to think a lot of what one can think about this record will depend on where you sort of sit on orchestration. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, we've already gone and sort of mentioned a bit about orchestration there and how it's used on a pop record. I mean, you know, I, I listen to the hot buttered soul of Isaac Hayes or you know, uh, or Philadelphia soul. And, and, you know, and that Philadelphia soul, I, I confess, I don't have it much in the way of expertise. But, you know, I've, I've listened to that and you, there's a lot of orchestration on that sort of music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can listen to the orchestration on um, well, last year's Morning Phase by Beck uh, or, sure. or Sea Change. Or any number of records that, you know, sort of have augmented pop arrangements with strings. And, you know, I can dig that. And the big bone of contention, I think, though, was like in the Beatles catalogue where, you know, the Let It Be album, where Phil Spector went and, you know, did his thing all over the long and winding road. And yeah. you know, there's a famous argument you know, for, of uh, Paul McCartney saying for years, my song has been ruined. And certainly <laughs> it, it did drown it out. And it was a big contrast when you actually watch Let It Be and you hear the song Naked. So we come to Dusty in Memphis, or really, as you know, as I mentioned before, you know, I, I'd prefer to call this album Dusty in New York via Memphis. Via Memphis. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
a good number of the songs here have strings on them. Uh, mm-hmm. Although, as funnily enough, not the most well-known one that you've already just gone and mentioned, Son of a Preacher Man. So the question that you know, we'll probably be wrestling with, or I'll be wrestling, I don't know, maybe you, know, you might think, no, nope, it's all good. But the question which I've been wrestling with is whether the strings intrude or whether they're tasteful. And until I originally had been you know, prepping for this show, I just sort of like listened to it and I said, yeah, I'm really digging this album. But when you sort of like go song by song <laughs> and you sort of start thinking about the songs more, what you want to say about them, I changed my mind on, on some of these songs thinking, oh, you know, this song, the, the orchestration is intrusive. On this song, it's not. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I went through the same thing. I, as I was telling you earlier, I usually listen to this album in my car and I sing along and all the arrangement is there just kind of floating around me. But when I put the headphones on and actually listened to this album on my computer, um, I, it was a whole different scenario. Right. Everything is microscopic. Uh, when you actually sit down and listen to it, um, you hear every little thing, every little nuance. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, the headphones. Which can be good or bad. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. The album, even even though well, I mean, he, he, there's some songs by uh, by Burt Bacharach on this mm-hmm. album. But even if you didn't look at the songwriting credits, you know that is Burt Bacharach influence. Even the even the non Bacharach songs, which is why yeah. I also sort of came to the, the whole question about is this really a Southern Soul sort of album? And I guess part of the problem is that that's how you know the album was being sold to uh, potential listeners of the album. Yeah, Dusty and Memphis, and this is out in Atlantic. And I believe that, you know, she went, she'd, I think prior to this, like she'd recorded four albums. And by the time she'd released her previous album, it, you know, what she wasn't necessarily doing so so well. I think, you know, she'd, um, mm-hmm. from what I read, she'd, she'd, been, she'd been going back to playing working men's clubs and, and, and cabarets and stuff like that. And she wanted that credibility. So recording with Atlantic yeah. seemed like a good idea. Oh, yeah. And it was supposed, this was the album that was going to, revive her career and just uh, uh, make her credible with that genre. But it didn't, it didn't do that, did it? <laughs> uh, well, no, it, it, it flopped. But it's, well, I mean, in more than one respect, this, we could say that this album was her Pet Sounds because, you know, when Pet Sounds came out, it went nowhere. It was different to what mm-hmm. had come before and yet not. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there are some people say, well, you know, Pet Sounds is not really a rock album. And, you know, this mm. Dusty Memphis, you could argue, is it really a soul album? Of course, mind you, in both cases, you could argue, does it matter? Well, and in, in the argument of is this a soul record, um, when you look at the songwriters on it, I mean, um, these are <laughs> a lot of these are, you know, people that wrote, you know, like Brill Building songs right. or, um, you know, like they're out in California and they're people that were writing songs for movies and things like that. But I believe that it is a soul record because her performance is what makes it a soul record, because I feel like a great song is a great song and it can be translated into different genres. Um, but just the the touches that the Memphis Cats put on it um, and her delivery, I feel that's what makes it a soul album. So I would argue that this is definitely a Southern Soul album. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, what we're going to do now is we're going to go to a quick break and listen to uh, Eric Reanimator's Album I Love segment. He's going to be talking, as I mentioned earlier on, about Ronnie Spector's EP, I think from 1998, called She Talks to Rainbows. And after that, Shannon and I will be back to go song by song on the album Dusty in Memphis. And uh, we'll probably have a bit of back and forth about 
definitions of soul and what the the songs are like. And uh, hopefully you fans out there, maybe we'll give you something to think about. But, you know, if you want to send me some feedback for the next show, I'd be interested to know your perspective. Anyway, you're listening to Love That Album. Morris on this end, Shannon on that end. And uh, we'll be back shortly. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. One, two, one, two, three, four. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. That is Ronnie Spector from the EP She Talks to Rainbows covering Johnny Thunder's classic You Can't Put Your Arms Around Memory. And this EP is going to be covering uh, this time around. No one Morris told me that he was doing uh, Dusty in Memphis. I was thinking, uh, oh, you know, great female voices in bands. I thought about doing a band called Insane Jane, but I don't actually have any of their music anymore. At least I can't put my hands on it at the moment. Uh, go to YouTube, check out a song called One Eye, and just listen to the singer's voice. It's uh, great. Anyway, so I went down a list of other other possibles, and I landed on this EP by Ronnie Spector, produced by Joey Ramone and Daniel Ray, who was one of the producers that worked with Ramones often. And this came out on Kill Rockstar Records, which is one of those 90s indie labels out of the Pacific Northwest. And it's five songs and it's uh, Ronnie covering Joey Ramone and Johnny Thunders and doing a classic song here and there and it's uh, just a great five song EP um, shows off her voice 
and uh, actually shows off what somebody with that kind of a voice and that kind of a stature and gravitas in the musical world can do with songs that people might think are just trash, throwaway, punk rock nonsense. I mean, we're talking about Johnny Thunders, a guy who famously died of an OD, and Jerry Ramone, that, that weirdo who died of cancer. And uh, anyway, let's uh, take a listen to some of the other stuff that she covers here. See if you can uh, pick up where any of these are from. Well, it's been building up inside of me for, oh, I don't know how long. I don't know why, but I keep thinking something's bad. Five tunes, but that's really all you need. If you uh, don't know Ronnie outside of maybe the big hits from the uh, Ronettes era, you know, uh, this is a good place to check it out. If you are for some reason not down with uh, in any way supporting Phil Spector, considering what's become of his life, um, yeah, this is this is maybe where you should turn to check out Ronnie Spector. And uh, if you want to hear more of her, those classic Ronette songs are out there. Uh, you know, she's not the only one from this era that's still out there making good music. You know, another one I could have covered would have been um, Mary Weiss from the Shangri-Las, who had a pretty cool garage rock kind of album a couple years ago. But, uh, yeah, we're going to end now with the uh, title track. Uh, this is one written by Joy Ramone. She talks to rainbows. Uh, enjoy, and we'll catch you next time.
Thanks very much, Eric, for another wonderful Album I Love segment. And he'll be back uh, in November to do another Album I Love segment, as well as his continuing series of compilation episodes of Love That Album, where he talks about his favorite compilation albums and soundtrack albums and the sort of things that we don't do on Love That Album main series, the Mothership episodes, but uh, I'm really a big fan of him doing those compilation series of episodes. So please catch that if you have not already done so. But meanwhile, I'm here with Shannon Hurley on the other end of a Skype connection. She's over in Los Angeles. And I'm here in Melbourne, and we're discussing Dusty Springfield, specifically her album Dusty in Memphis. So we're going to do the track-by-track thing, which I haven't done for a while. We felt this album warranted it. What we'll do is we'll start off with track one, which is a good place to start when you're discussing an album. And the first song is Just a Little Lovin'. Just a little loving Early in the morning Beats a cup of coffee For starting off the day Just a little loving When the world is yawning Makes you wake up feeling good things Are coming your way When this song gets underway, the first thing I think is the name of the album, as I've mentioned, should not be Dusty in Memphis, but When Dusty (laughs) Met Memphis. I'm harping on a little bit about this. Ever so slightly different in emphasis in that name, but the real title implies that she's become immersed in the Memphis sound of Atlantic Records, and we've already sort of gone to discuss this a bit, Mm -hmm. but right off the bat with this tune, we hear that it's Dusty, a real perfectionist, doing her thing in the Memphis context, and when I say her thing, there's still something of the I don't know what to do with myself style of Dusty, as opposed to the other sorts of uh, performers that we normally associate with Atlantic Records. Uh-huh. Even the title itself, it seems like a very Dusty Springfield title, um, like the wishing, hoping, you know, like I think that yes. they, you know, it's a little bit playful um, and it's definitely a Dusty Springfield song just kind of dropped into the waters of Memphis. Yeah, okay, so I guess maybe when Dusty met Memphis can go by the wayside. Yeah, Dusty in Memphis give you the indication that it's still a Dusty Springfield album, but she's dipping her toes in the water of the mm-hmm. Memphis sound. I've, I've always thought that the words sexy and sultry were interchangeable, but to me, I guess this song shows in, in a slight way that they're not. I'll try to sort of define where I see the difference. So in this song, she opens up with the, the, the lyrics, just a little loving early in the morning, beats a cup of coffee for a way to start out the day. And we're mm-hmm. getting a song here about morning sex. Yeah, we're getting that. <laughs> uh, 
uh, it's not the only song. Not the only song on the album, does it? Uh, I, oh, I got to yeah. confess, I get I get a little hot under the collar when I listen to this song. Um, <laughs> maybe that's too much information for the listeners out there. Um, you know, her voice is very sexy and seductive, and mm-hmm. you know, you you want to stop whatever you're doing, damn it, and put that theory to the test. Yet there's still something about her voice and image that is not the tomboy we discussed earlier on the show, but it's very much the girl next door. And so I, I don't know that I can live with necessarily the definition of sultry. You get the siren song from the girl next door. So is it huh, sexy? Yeah. Is it sultry? What's a good terminology? Is it just semantics? Your thoughts? Yeah, maybe it's a bit of that Catholic guilt. From <laughs> her. <laughs> it's that very yeah, contrary um, personality that she's projecting. And it's, yeah, I mean, but you know what? I think, I think there's something to that. It just shows that she's got depth, you know, like, Hey, she is the, she's the girl next door, but she's really, you know, laying it on, you know, so mm-hmm. <laughs> it's sort of an image change for her, which right. is, you know, interesting. So, and you're right. This is not the only song in the album right now. I can think of two other songs mm-hmm. that are very heavy on the sultry, sultriness. Right. A couple of them coming up very, very soon. This song was written by Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, and it's surprising to me that it's actually the only song by that classic team that ends up on this album, considering we have Bacharach songs and we have uh, Goffin and King songs on this album, multiple. And Randy Newman also. Oh, Randy Newman, yes, yes. This song in its arrangement, though, Bacharach might not have written every song on this album, but his personality looms large over this album. Oh, yes. And that's. I, I think, especially in the arrangement of it, you know, with the bass, it's that bouncing bass uh, sound, you know. And but this song sort of seems to me a lot like Jackie DeShannon. You're almost sort of thinking what the world needs now. This has a big feel of that. When did that song come out? Oh, I think that that came out. Oh, I can't be precise about the year. I don't know. I should have looked that up. But I, I, I think it was before 1969. Okay. Right. Um, oh, yeah, that, so, that definitely seems to have had an influence. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know whether that was intentional, but uh, it certainly does have that feel. And I, I know we've already discussed this, and I'm going to keep bringing this up, but it, it doesn't completely have that soul immersion. It's just like soul is just another ingredient. You know, uh, her album is a big uh, plate of stew or a big cake, mm-hmm. and we're going to put a little bit of soul and we're going to put a little bit of dusty. Okay. Yeah, I can. I, I hear what you're saying, and I can live with that description mm. too. I, I understand. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, as per, of, you know, quite a few of the songs here, the key is the complex disguised as simplicity. You know, the song goes down very, very easily, but we get key changes, we get lush orchestration, and a killer rhythm section, all working hard to make it sound perfect. And that's the key to great soul music. It, it, it sounds simple, it sounds beautiful, and you get uh, little horn section things where they might just do two or three note motifs, mm-hmm. and yet it sounds so perfect. That's what soul is about. It, it, it sounds complex and simple all at the same time. Do you think that... Um the lack of spontaneity that you feel with any of these songs, does that contribute to any feeling that you might have to not making this a complete soul record for you? Like, is it too perfect? Ah, uh, look, but I think the very nature of 60s soul for me, and I'm sure that there are probably some soul fans out there who would hit me over the back of the head for saying this, but I don't think 
the nature of at least recorded soul. Maybe in a live context, it's spontaneous. A lot of it's spontaneous. But I think mm. in a recorded setting, a lot of it, I'm sure every note, apart from, you know, maybe if a guitarist is doing a solo or something like that, but, you know, right. the, those horn arrangements, they have to be stuck to. The, the mm -hmm. guitar work, it has to, it has to be stuck to. You know, maybe the, the, the vocalist, he or she can um, scat or do something all over the place. Uh, also, can we talk about the, the backing vocalist? Please, please. You know, yes. Yeah. Oh, you, they're going to come up. Yeah, yeah, the sweet the, inspiration. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was really uh, surprised to see some of the credits that the Sweet Inspirations have sung on, mm -hmm. uh, what songs they've sung on. Did you know that they actually sang on the track Grease, the Frankie oh, Valley track? <laughs> no, I did not know that. <laughs> that was them. The oh, Grease wow. is the word. Like when they sing that over and over, that's them. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't realize that worked like that far into the 70s. Yeah. And um, I did not know that Whitney Houston's mother was in that group. Oh, no, so that, that, I, that I did know. That much I did know. Okay. Yes. Um, they also sang on Electric Ladyland. Oh, wow. And, and of course, they also sang with Elvis Presley. And I think yes. that that's the main connection with uh, most of the band members uh, on, this, uh, on this album. Mm -hmm. it's, it's all through Elvis Presley, which is you know, another reason why it's such a Southern Soul sounding record to me. Well, we'll certainly be, um, we'll certainly be coming back to uh, discuss. There's a couple of songs where I absolutely think that their work is absolutely the highlight of the song already understand here that you know the the sweet inspiration sound do give it some of that southern sound and the rhythm section uh gene chrisman of uh, mm -hmm. the memphis cats and you know being a drummer i guess that's where i turned a lot of my ears to his playing is a model of precision without oh, yeah. forgetting the soul or the dynamic and uh, i'll be mentioning his name more than once uh, on, this, on this program, but his playing is absolutely exquisite. And that's what I come back to. He's obviously uh, a highly uh, proficient player and can probably do anything, but the beauty of it is pulling back. And oh, what... especially on that first, on the first track, you know, yeah. I think he really lays back and um, just the triple timing of, of everything. Like just, he's got a great feel for it. Yes, yes, he, he certainly does. But well, I think we'll, um, yeah, look, certainly that's a, a great opening to the album. And it'll mm -hmm. get you a little, if you haven't heard it before, it's, even though there's that orchestration there, this is one of the songs on the album where I think that, even though it is a little bit heavy, but I think the orchestration still works. And, you know, as I said, it reminds me a lot of What the World Needs Now, which is a song that I truly love. Yeah. But, and really, how can you argue with a song whose sentiment is, uh, fuck, don't fight? I mean, Really? Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a peace song. It's a peace <laughs> song. It's a peace song. Hey. All right. So we'll go on to the next song. This is uh, so much love. I'll never forget you for 
it's just a personal thing, but I don't know, where do you sit on this song? It doesn't sort of do a hell of a lot for me. And I, I just sort of think after we've come off this great album opener, like uh, <laughs> well, just a little loving, this sort of, sort of seems like the, the, the track two let down a little bit. Yeah, it's funny that these two are placed right together also because, yeah, I feel like it's just like, it's kind of saying the same sentiment but it's just like a, a, it's taking it down a few notches like I would have rather have heard a, a contrasting subject matter for the next song maybe or I don't know I mean it's just I don't know. Well, I think I would have really, There's really only a couple of subjects on the album. It's either about songs about sex or, or songs about my man has left me. Please, what can I do me. to please yeah. you? <laughs> That's true. There's not much else. You're right. Uh, I would have liked to have been talking about um, Ohio in 1969 or, or, or Vietnam. Come on, Dusty, get political. Yeah, exactly. Political. Politicized. Um, so much love, though. I think... There are a couple good points to it. Like, I like the word painting of it. Um, when she goes into the, the bridge, like, there's so few men nowadays who understand the soul of a woman. Like, in that part, when it goes into minor, um, then you get the lift when it goes back up into the major chorus. Right. Um, I love things like that. Um, so I think that there are some good points to that song. I think what, uh, you know, What's going to be the big bone of contention for me, uh, as I've mentioned countless times already about the orchestration, there are some songs where it works and there are some songs where it's just laid on too thick. And I think yeah. this is possibly one of those songs. And if there's any good bootleggers out there who have a Dusty in Memphis naked, not, not Dusty <laughs> naked, but a musically naked version of the album, <laughs> I'm all for it. I want a copy of that bootleg. And, I'd be interested to hear this song and certainly a few of the other songs that oh, may yeah. not necessarily would... work with, without the orchestration, just the Memphis Cats and Dusty's vocals. I would love to hear that too, actually. Just a stripped-down version of the song. And having said that, I mean, because like, I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of uh, Jerry Goffin and Carole King. I mean, and really, who whoever's a fan of pop music wouldn't be a fan of those too. You know, absolutely yeah. the consummate song crafters. But you know, once again, it, it, I'm a big fan of arrangements well-crafted arrangements and possibly because of the orchestration that's possibly what it is that, uh, that yeah it's a little overkill i think you're i think you're right <laughs> yeah, so that's going to possibly be the theme of uh, our discussion on this album you know, do, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, does it kill it or does it not but the next the next song that we're going to talk about well, is something that it. i think has a great arrangement so well, okay well <laughs> let, let's get to it uh number three the song that unless you've been hidden under a rock you know this song Son of a preacher man. Billy Ray was a preacher's son, and when his daddy would visit, he'd come along. When they gather around and started talking, that's when Billy would take me a walk in. Out through the backyard, we go walking. Then he look into my eyes. Lord knows to my so we're at the big hit single. Actually, I didn't do my research to sort of find out, even though the album didn't do well, how did, do you know, how did this song do? Did this song do well as a single? I have absolutely no idea. I guess I could look it up on Wikipedia to see what the highest chart position is, but... Um, but it's been around, but you know, uh, Quentin Tarantino, he's a fan of sort of the more underground <laughs> things to yes. put in his soundtracks to his movies. And so knowing him, I wouldn't be surprised that if this song 
Maybe it didn't chart very well at all because oh, <laughs> Tarantino up. put it in his, in his movie. Oh, oh here we go. But it, this, this song was far from obscure even at the time when he included it in Pulp Fiction. It's true. It's um, true. So, but yes, but this is a song that uh, a certain generation of people will have images of uh, John Travolta and Uma Thurman's feet embedded in their yeah. brains every, every time they hear this song. Thus far on the album, this is the song that comes the closest to that late 60s Memphis sound. There's no orchestration on this yeah. one. This is just... I mean, there's the horn section, and that's that's great, but that's part of the Memphis sound. Yeah. And it's really not quite what you would have expected from Dusty Springfield. This is the first song for me on the album where the Memphis sound has, has really captured her in its in its spell her vocals are soulful in that memphis sort of way yeah i think the the horns really strengthen the song and the interplay between the bass and guitar right at the very beginning with the with the horns also i think every instrument has its place in this album and it's very economical the way it's arranged and i think it's perfect the way it is Oh yeah, um, this the points I wanted to make. Um, I've already mentioned Gene Crisman by name, and mm-hmm. you know, as you say, every instrument has its place here, and every instrument is doing something absolutely perfect. But I love his what we like to call tight but loose uh, mm-hmm. drum pattern on this, and you know, the the coming in late that hi hat that yeah, just that that I'm sorry, listeners, if that sounded shitty coming through. <laughs> crappy headphones there but you know what i'm talking about the arrangement the brilliant ascension to the chorus of the horn section and it's clever use in the chorus it just seems to be it's working as a call and response with yeah. uh, with dusty's voice you know um the only one who could ever reach me Papa, was a son of a preacher <laughs> man i love a good call and response in a song oh yeah and then even then like the sweet inspirations answering the call of was the son of a preacher man yes. like I, I just love i, I love everything about the song, which was written by somebody named John Hurley, which is no relation to me, and <laughs> Ronnie Wilkins. <laughs> so you can't go claiming any royalties on that one? Just, Cannot. Nope. <laughs> damn shame. Um, so, yeah, once again, it's all very simple sounding. And that's, once again, the beauty of great soul. Uh, it's all simple building blocks, just everything put in the right place. And, of course, it's another song about sex. Mm-hmm. Yep. It seems to be a soul obsession. I mean, I, I wonder, if, you know, whatever put that in my mind was, you know, watching all those years ago, watching uh, the commitments, and listening to Jimmy Rabbit say, "Soul, it's the sound of, it's the sound of the factory, but it's also the sound of sex." <laughs> yep. <laughs> got me, That's got right. me thinking about, you know, the only one who could ever reach her was the son of a preacher man. And, and yeah, we, just we like the, the illicitness of it, you know, just like I love the story that just it just paints in your your mind about this woman telling you about like this is the only person, you know, like just there, there's just so so many layers to the song when you think about it. Mm. Just so many reasons why it's so wrong and so right. Yeah, I oh, know, more so right. More, more of that Catholic guilt coming yes. on. But, you know. So, all right, let's go on to um, the next song on the album. This is I Don't Want to Hear It Anymore. In my neighborhood, we don't live so good. The rooms are small and the buildings made of wood. I hear the neighbors talking about you and me. I guess I heard it all. The talk is loud and the wall 
This is a devastating song. I hear this and I want to cry my eyes out. It's just, it's oh, an amazing breakup song. And it's that moment when you first realize that you are not meant to be with the person that you were with. <laughs> mm -hmm. But doesn't it seem unusual to you that this is a song that's written by Randy Newman? Because yes, we know, it's very we know, strange. <laughs> we know of Randy Newman, the man who eventually became the songwriter who wrote these very cynical songs about the American way of life. He's a blackly comic songwriter wrote Sail Away, the man who wrote Sail Away, the man who wrote Political Science, the man who wrote Short People, and he's written a song here, I Don't Want to Hear It Anymore. It, it, it goes to show in a way that he's brilliant in that he could write a song to water, because I don't imagine that this was in his natural wheelhouse. Someone said, no. Randy, can you write us a song that evokes this image? Sure, go ahead, no worries. It, it, he's to me a, that... a working songwriter. Yeah, that, that's, to me that is the mark of a wonderful songwriter is that they're able to just uh, write a song for somebody else to sing and it totally uh, takes on a new character and he erases himself from, from the bottom line. You know, like you, you would not know that this is a Randy Newman song and I think that's what makes it great. But of course, you know, he's from uh, music royalty, you know, with uh, his father and his uncles. You know, being a Hollywood film music mm -hmm. writing royalty. Of course, he rebelled by going into rock and roll and pop. Uh, yeah, although, didn't, well, what was it? His dad wrote the uh, the fanfare theme. I think his uncle. I think it was Lionel. His uncle. So there was Alfred, Lionel, and one other member. Was it the 20th remember. Century Fox? Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, think, oh, I, think okay. that, I think that's his uncle. That's his uncle. But yeah, uh, and then Thomas Newman, his brother, is a right. huge composer also, and he did like the uh, uh, James Bond. Like he does James Bond scores and things like oh, that. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Randy Newman and his whole family are just insanely talented. Yeah, but but you know, once again, it's it's just amazing to think that you know the man who went and wrote these very blackly comic songs, then went on to go, of course, write the family-friendly stuff for Pixar. But you know, mm -hmm. years before that, he, he's writing a song like "I Don't Want to Hear It Anymore," and I mean, I, I don't know, was he? Did he work in the uh, the Brill Building or, or a Los Angeles equivalent? Uh, that's a good question. I think he had been out in LA. I don't think he was in Brill Building at all, but. I can look that up. I, I, I feel like I need to know this for myself now. <laughs> but, you know, no matter how much, I guess, he wrote to order, and I, I, as I said, I imagine that this was written to order. I mm -hmm. can't imagine that, that this is something he would be including in a live set in, you know, at any stage of his career. Oh, here's a song that I wrote for Dusty Springfield. I just, yeah, I can't imagine this coming out of his mouth. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, again, and he's got another cut on this album, which again, I say, I can't believe that he wrote this song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, You sort of, when you listen to songs like this, you sort of wonder as well, who was the album aimed at? Because, you know, the, the youth, the kids, God, I sound old, uh, but, you know, we're <laughs> probably listening to more Southern Fried Soul or we're listening to Psychedelia uh, or folk music. And this is very much a grown-ups album, but were they, you know, were they listening to Atlantic? And, and I guess that's possibly... I wonder if it's because they didn't know 
who they were going to market this album to mm-hmm. with yeah. songs like I Don't Want to Hear It Anymore. Whether that That's a good question. A yeah, I, th- I think maybe they were, just, they were trying to mainstream this album so that it would get a lot of people interested in it. Um, like, I, I would say a slightly older crowd, you know, judging by the subject matter of the whole album. I would say that they were probably going for a slightly older uh, adult crowd that would, you know, like things like pop and soul. Yeah, maybe that's where it failed is that it was not able to reach all the audiences that it needed to. <laughs> uh, so this is um, uh, another. I, I don't think that there's excessive orchestration on this, although it does sort of crop up, I think, on the, on the uh, choruses and then they pull it back a lot for the verses. This is one of those people are gossiping about us and say we're not good for each other type songs. And I'm a big fan of that sort of thing. But yeah, You're not a is... big fan of that no, sort no, of no, thing? No, I am a, no, I am a big You're fan a big of fan. it. I, I'm a big fan when it's done well. Oh, and the Sweet Inspirations with their little echoing of the gossip. Um, right, right. It's also, that also kind of gets to me too. <laughs> it's really, oh. Yeah, yeah. It's no, almost like I, the I chorus they, they, of... The, 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 something about this song which can be said about you know, quite a lot of the songs on this album is the dynamic is the melodrama and this mm-hmm. certainly does fit you know if if this were a tv show it'd be general hospital oh yeah it's a definite soap opera song yeah for yeah. sure um, and, and maybe it makes you feel good that it's happening to this character you know somebody someone else rather than you like it just makes you feel like or or if you're in it i don't know if you even want to listen to the song if you're actually going through a breakup <laughs> no no but I, I think i think one thing that randy newman did very cleverly in the writing of this song is unlike a, a song where um you know they, they say right well people are gossiping about us and say we're no good for each other the normal tack would be to take but I'm going to love you anyway. But the tack he takes in here is he does paint this very dark picture, you know, where she sings, because the talk just never ends and the heartache soon begins. The yeah. talk is so loud and the walls are much too thin. And he's really gone and painted this picture of the physical location. There's someone there on the wrong side of the tracks and it's all very depressing. You're right, it is heartbreaking. But he goes and takes this well-worn theme and he does something in his writing that's a little bit different to uh, the, the normal sort of we're not meant for each other type of uh, mm-hmm. type. Oh, and by the way, Randy Newman was born in L.A. I think, to my knowledge, he's always been out in L.A. And I think that he's he had been selling songs um, out here in L.A. So I don't know that he ever even went to New York. To right. well, but was it ever like an L.A. equivalent of the Brill Building? No, it doesn't even, it doesn't, I'm looking at his Wikipedia page and it doesn't seem to be saying anything about where he... Uh, was doing his song selling. <laughs> okay. Okay. So there, it's, there's a lot of information that's left out. Right. All right. Well, let's uh, move on to uh, the next song on the album, which is a King Goffin song, and I think possibly my favourite song on the album. This is. Oh. This is. Don't forget about me. Like Son of a Preacher Man, there's no adornment 
of this song with strings, making it you know, obviously you know in in, in the uh, upper echelon of uh, <laughs> the, 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 for me the songs on the album. And with Dusty's vocals, it couldn't be classified as a tough song from a vocal perspective, but the Memphis Cats are playing up a storm in, in such a way that it could sound tough, you know, with a with a different singer. But she brings. We were talking before, you know, before about sexy and sultry, and she certainly brings on a bit of a sexy, but also a very desperate sound to uh, Yeah, right. yeah, and a very driving. Like, this almost has a Motown beat to it also. Right, I, like, I hadn't thought really, about that, but now that you mention it, yes, I definitely can see that. And the fuzz-out guitar, like, it's really going for a different kind of just energetic sound here, yep. which is great to break up the album to be this far down on the list in the track listing. Yep, it, it's sort, it's like a, a, a piecemeal sort of song because the drama real, really builds up and the dynamic, it ramps up in the chorus. You know, you get the band ramping it up and then the uh, the background vocals of the Sweet Inspirations ramping it up and the horns doing their bit and every you know, it starts off minimalist with uh, mm-hmm. just these nice little tasty guitar fills. Uh, and then by the time you get to the chorus, this drama, it's incredible. I don't know how you feel about this, but... I like the way that she sings that verse so happy and upbeat, even though the lyrics that she's singing are just so, you know, just like, you're not here anymore. And you know, like, it's a total contradiction of how the energy and the emotion that she's singing it with. Mm. And she sounds like she's smiling as she's singing it. So, I, 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 Actually, I confess I hadn't sort of thought about that, but I, I've gone and discussed this, I think, with um, quite a few of the guests on the show before. I love a song where there's a contrast between uh, the melody and the lyric or in this case between the delivery of the lyric and mm-hmm. the lyric's intention yeah, because you know she's saying don't you forget about me but if you know what you're saying is right that she's saying it with a smile on her face then that's yeah and she seems like she's keeping herself busy and, and she's frantic and she's you know running for the running for the the bus or the cab and She's got a show. She's got a show that, you know, she's got to get, get to on time. So it sounds like she's doing a good job of, you know, getting over this guy. But mm. Well, I mean, look, you know, but when she actually sings that line, don't forget about me, in the chorus, the title of the, <laughs> of the song, she almost does sound desperate. The rest of the song does sound like a little bit laid back because she's sort of yeah. wanting to ret- um, ratchet up that drama. But on the chorus, she almost does sound like, okay, I've been pretending here. I've been pretending yeah. that I'm getting on with my life. But please don't forget about me. You know, she... Ooh, Come on, girl, get, but, some re- get some self-respect. By the time that she's finishing up that song, though, like when she's on the on the vamp on the way out, yeah, um, she sounds again like she's singing with a smile, and that's over the the vamp on the chorus. And so, right. I think by the end, like it's kind of come full circle. So she's kind of telling a little story, even with her delivery. Right. The bass player, uh, a guy called Tommy Cogbill, doubles up on the guitar on this track. And it's really some very, very tasty noodling going on here. Uh, It's pretty low in the mix, but it's there and it just swirls around the melody just as an absolutely beautiful job. Like in Son of a Preacher Man, the horn sections say so much with so few notes. They just sort of hang around loosely in the verses, then build up to a frenzy in the chorus and just really kill it along with the rhythm section. And I mean, look, to me, Dusty's not Aretha. But on the chorus, it sounds like that's what she's trying to channel. Mm-hmm. Really. Yeah, so much power in that, and I and, and I think the the arrangement boosts that. I know that uh, Aretha did a version of "Son of a Preacher Man," but I'd love to know whether she ever covered this song. Ooh, that's I'd a good. Love I, I, yeah, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, that, uh, Aretha, if you're listening to this uh, show, please get in contact. <laughs> 
But she'll uh, be right on that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure she will uh, get her people to talk to my people. Um, but yeah, it, it's also yeah another case of the simple, all these simple building blocks combining to make something so powerful. And that really is the essence of great 60s soul. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about another sex song. This is Breakfast in Bed. So before sitting down to really analyze what I felt about this album, I'd always let it wash over me. And I've been listening to this album for years. And you know, even the lesser songs still seem to you know, sort of hold their own against the obviously truly great ones. And mm-hmm. there can be part of the problem about actively thinking about stuff to say for this podcast. Uh-huh. is you get new perspective and you never listen to it in the same way. And I think Breakfast in Bed, for me, unfortunately, is you know, it's one of those songs. It's not oversaturated uh, with strings like So Much Love. But right. I don't know, how do you feel about this one? To me, it's just sort of a little bit a, a by-the-numbers sort of composition you know, with a standard sort of arrangement that the Memphis Cats, I think, could have done in their sleep. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like this is one of the key tracks for this album. And okay. when I when I think of this album, I think of this song probably immediately. Okay. And I think it's just because uh, it there's something so visual about it. And even just like, <laughs> like you, uh, again, the story of the song, I, I think, is just so precise. Like everything is spelled out and every little, you know, like every detail is, comes out in every verse. And I think it's just one of those songs that you just, you, you have all the senses of the song and you just like imagine like going up to this guy and like, like, you know, like take your shoes off, you know, and, and just all these, like, it's almost it's playing out in your head. It's all, again, it's almost like a soap opera of a song. Yes. Look, it is, it is very playful. And mm-hmm. once again, because it's a song about sex, I, I love songs about sex. But, you know, you've, Ben's already done an all-time top 10 songs about sex. Damn, he should do a volume oh. two. Oh, he loves the song, by the way. <laughs> oh, sorry, Ben. He's like, ooh, Dusty. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm like, oh, now I have to compete with Dusty Springfield? Great. Okay. <laughs> One thing that I will say about listening to the arrangement of this song, I, I don't know, have you ever thought about this? The horn motif in this song sounds like it's ripped off right out of Soul Man. Oh, really? I was going to say, I could see uh, Midnight Hour. Uh, yeah, okay, okay. Well, Soul Man, okay. Okay. Early in the morning for me. Ba, ba, ba. You know, I guess Soul Man is a bit, uh, well, far, it's not laid back, far more active than that. But um, uh, So oh, maybe it's just in the voicing of it. You know, yeah. like maybe when it, you hear the Barry sax hit the, you know, hit the very bottom of that chord and then maybe it's just the way they're layered and mm. it, it could definitely be, you know, like you're right. I mean, it is sort of a by the numbers uh, horn part for these guys, um, but I think it works for the sun. No, I was actually saying it was more like a, a by the numbers composition. I actually thought that that mm-hmm. horn section was probably for me the most interesting thing. About oh, it was the most interesting thing. Okay. Yeah. 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 
I think the horn, the horns on this part, like they do shine on the song. Right. So I have no argument with that. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's go on to uh, the next track on the album. This is uh, "Just One Smile," it's the uh, next Randy Newman mm-hmm. composition. Can I cry a little bit? There's nobody to notice it. Can I cry if I want to? No one cares. Why can't I pretend? So this is another case of a song that I guess I just used to passively enjoy as another part of the overall tapestry that is really? dusty in Memphis. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, listening to it, you know, for the show, you know, a bit more of the uh, what will this song tell me? I guess I feel like I can understand how Paul McCartney felt when he heard what Phil Spector had done to uh, the Long and Winding Road. <laughs> um, I think this is a song that I think I, I really want to hear without the orchestration. This is something that I'd like to hear just with the rhythm section, see how this would sound. I disagree entirely because I love the arrangement so much on the song. I think the French horn part should have won a Grammy for just that <laughs> part itself. Right after she says, "If you could, if you could hear what I was, if I would I say what's in my heart?" Um, when she hits "What's in my heart," there's a little French horn line that is the most beautiful part on this whole album, I believe. Like it, for me, it's just oh, it, it's it does wonders for my soul. Like I get goosebumps every time I hear it. The arrangement of the ba- the pedal bass that's that goes on in the first half of the verse. Mm-hmm. Listen for it. Like it'll just be hanging on the root, just for that first half. Yep. And you feel like everything else is soaring all around it. I think it's oh, I love the arrangement on this one. So I, if I never heard Dusty in Memphis naked yep. <laughs> for this yep. track, I'd be happy. I I keep let me keep the arrangement. Okay. No, I, I think because there's that 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 sort of swirling string sort of feel about it. And at least bring it down in the mix. It, <laughs> I, look, I, 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 probably I'm looking at this album, or I have looked about, at this album in the wrong way. I shouldn't have sort of thought. If the album had been called Dusty Sings a Bunch of Burt Bacharach and Randy yeah. Newman songs, and, and there was none of the baggage of it being a Memphis album, then I might not have. I, I'm coming to it probably in a bad way, and I've not looked at it as an album unto itself I've still got this baggage in my head about this is supposed to be a soul album and yeah I think that might have something to do with it yeah, I think yeah. you're on to something <laughs> you have Bad to approach me. it a different way Morris <laughs> shame on me shame, shame on, on you, you. <laughs> <laughs> alright so let's talk about uh, the next song on the album which is another very famous song but not necessarily in the uh, dusty Springfield context this is Windmills of Your Mind Run. Like a circle in a spiral, like a wheel within a wheel, never ending or beginning, a never spinning wheel, like a snowball down a mountain, or a carnival balloon, like a carousel that's turning, running rings around the moon, like a clock whose hands are sweeping past the minutes of its face. I confess, I haven't seen the Thomas Crown Affair, have you? No, I have not. (laughs) 
Well, there you go. But that's that's where this song had a life independent of, of this album. And really, I guess this song has a life independent of the film because, you know, everyone knows Windmills of Your Mind. Although I think possibly the first time I heard it, might have, I might have been a kid. It was done as a, um, a very fast sort of funny thing on the Muppet show. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, there was a, a, I've got to look that up. I seem to have a vague recollection of that being the first time I, I heard it. But I think... Uh, I hadn't heard of this song until I, I discovered this album. Oh, really? So I was a newbie, yeah. So you haven't heard the Petula Clark version? No, I had never heard that. Right. I still don't know it. Oh, you <laughs> looked that up. I think it was originally sung by um, a, a fellow called Noel Harrison. And I think I, I okay. looked that up on YouTube, but um, there, but you know, I, I seem to remember the first one I hearing was like a frantic version on the Muppet Show, and that's what I first think of when I hear the song, which is really not how it's supposed to be thought of. Huh. We have a we have an a cappella group here in uh, well in Australia, they're not the Melbourne group, but uh, a group from Sydney called the Idea of North, and they do a really gorgeous Latin uh, arrangement. Oh, nice. Of, uh, yeah, I mean, you can hear the the Latin feel in it in Dusty's version also. Right. That's really cool, and it's almost like a it's almost like a bossa nova almost right, too. Like the, right, right, right. Uh, like you can kind of hear the Brazilian well, that, acu- um, that acoustic guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and this is written by Alan Bergman, Marilyn Bergman, Marilyn and Bergman, Michael Legrand. Now, Marilyn Bergman used to be the president of ASCAP, by the way. Oh, okay, so, look, so I, I, I don't know terribly much about uh, about uh, the Bergmans, but uh, Michelle Legrand is um, a composer who, um, you know, there's a couple of films that I confess, I'm not big fans of the film and uh, of the films, and I know that there are people out there who want to smash me over the back of the head for saying this, but uh, Terry Frost, if you're listening, please don't hurt me. Uh, the, but the films, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and The Young Girls of Rochefort, or Roquefort, a couple of uh, French films from the 60s, that uh, Michel Legrand went and wrote the music for and even though I don't care for the film so much but his music is absolutely exquisite and wow. um, you should you should check those films out if only for the music I mean look you know, the, they might the music uh, oh, the, the films themselves might do something for you uh, mm-hmm. I know I'm, I'm in a very small minority but um, but one thing I will never argue is against the songs and Michel Legrand is an absolutely incredible uh, composer, so the fact that he's associated with this you know, gives me great yeah. source of happiness. And this is a beautiful song. Uh, yeah, well, I've I've heard his name before, so I will have to I will have to look up some of his other works. This one's right. you, you'll certainly do well with those uh, with those songs. I think part of what sort of I guess put me off. Um, I, I think it was in uh, the Young Girls of Rockford. Uh, I'd sort of heard it had this reputation like it's a big dance film, and it actually has uh, an actor called uh, George Shikaris, who uh, is most famous. I think for playing, uh, he was in uh, West Side Story. Oh yes, uh, that's how I know that name. As, yeah. um, uh, uh, as, as Bernardo, the leader of the Sharks. So I was expecting, wow, it's going to have, and it has Gene Kelly. So you think, oh wow, it's going to have this incredible choreography, and uh, choreography was no it never choreography. Just, it just never seems to take off the ground. It's, it's certainly not in the mm-hmm. West Side Story league. But you know, look, I'm I'm going to stop digging my own hole because I'm sure there are people out there who are listening to this and thinking. Um, you're a moron. What do you know? About great <laughs> films, but so. But anyway, the point I wanted to make was that uh, Michel Legrand wrote the the scores for those two films, and um, uh, I'm, I'm wondering whether he was responsible for the melody of this. But it's certainly beautiful. Uh, it does, yeah. a, does a great job. But once again, I guess because of you know, the whole soul thing in context, this is th- those Memphis Cats probably uh, were you know, great musicians that they could do anything. They probably say, well, you know, don't play too soul. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was sort of a, a departure from that. Um, I like how close mic'd Dusty's voices in this song. Yes. Um, which I hadn't really noticed before until I put on the headphones and really listened. And also the guitar, like you can just hear every little uh, knock and um, every little time the fingers go past the, the strings. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's a, an, a clever uh, production choice. Yes. Very intimate sounding. All right, let's uh, have a move on to the next song in the album. This is uh, In the Land of Make-Believe, a uh, Burt Bacharach, Hal David composition. This is a song that I think the album owes a lot stylistically to. And in one way, it's very much you know your typical Burt Bacharach, Hal David style of composition. But yet in the arrangement, I think this is one of the few moments where they decided to acquiesce to uh, what else was going on around them at the time, because this is a song with the sitar. And yeah. <laughs> if the song, had, if the album had come out seven or eight years later, they wouldn't have thought, "Wow, this song would work really nicely with a sitar." It's like, well, you know, yeah. what, are the, what are the kids doing? How can we make this work? Yeah, to me, the sitar makes it feel dated. And oh, I, I, I actually I stylistically honestly... like it. I think it's quite a nice, happy accident that the sitar was big <laughs> at the time. I, I really love it. I think it works well. It definitely dates it. And I have to say that this is actually my least favorite song on the proper. Okay. album okay <laughs> but i mean i do appreciate the dreaminess of it um but you know i just i feel like i'm not going to skip it when it comes up you know i still will listen to it i'll still sing along with it i'll still be into it um but it's my least favorite and i hate to say that because i'm a huge fan of, of Bacharach and david mm. and well of course she'd gone and done uh you know, Bacharach songs before and what so i just don't know what to do with myself i think that's a, that's, oh. a, that's a Bacharach song so you know he was never far from her mind i guess so but which sort of comes through to how serious was she about wanting to get inverted commas that credibility you know because that's what she that was her stated intention i need to get that credibility so i get out of the working men's clubs and i get out of the cabarets and i want to do what else is being what other people are listening to nowadays what else is out there and yet she never sort of quite took her foot out of that well that's not bad or good it's just it is what yeah. it is. And, and to me, this yeah, this keeps it firmly placed in the easy listening category. And so maybe that was some of the fan base they were trying to reach. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. I, I got to say that for the longest part of my life, I'd never listened to Burt Bacharach, or I never liked listening to Burt Bacharach. I always sort of put him in that easy listening category, and I appreciate him more as an arranger than necessarily as mm-hmm. as a tune smith. I mean, yeah, the tunes are great, but in, in terms of you know where the orchestration is placed, it's so clever. Oh and yeah! Just, I listen to his music in a completely different light in recent years from what I did for the first 30, 40 years of my life. I think that anybody who wants to become an arranger, all you have to do is just sit down and study. Do you know the way to San Jose? <laughs> because I feel like that song in itself has all of the elements that you need to become a great arranger. Just like listen to the structure and 
the uh, voicings um, of the backing vocals and uh, the way the horns come in and and even things like you know like where do you, where do you want to mo- modulate on this song you know things like it's I think it's got everything. Mm-hmm. So uh, okay, so pretty much I guess we're of the feel that you know this is this is, I wouldn't necessarily say it's not my top song because it's you know, it's it's not that sort of desperate sort of soul feel that uh, don't forget about me has. But but this is certainly one that I like, and I I do appreciate the sitar in it, even if it you know yep you know instantly it's a late or mid to late sixties song, but I do like it. I do like the feel that it has for it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're sort of in the in the winding stretch here, uh, and this is another song that I have a huge love for. Uh, the next one oh, is yeah. uh, written by uh, Goffin and King. This is No Easy Way Down. ago on Love That Album, I had uh, my good friend Mr. Bernard Stickwell, who's also my co-host on the See Here podcast. We discussed an album that he put me onto by a songwriter, singer-songwriter called Mark Eitzel, originally from a band called the American Music Club. And we discussed his album 60 Watt Silver Lining. And the opening track on that album is his version of No Easy Way Down. You want to do a comparison between the two versions. And I... I'm a big fan of both, but they, I mean, they're not a million miles from each other, and yet his version is more bare bones, more stripped back. In his hands, the song sounds like it's done from the perspective of a guy, he's in a bar, it's, uh, you know, one o'clock in the morning, he's had five or ten too many drinks, and he just had the worst thing that ever happened to him in his life, and he sounds mournful and depressed, and he's just ready to consider doing himself in mm-hmm. and, and the song the, the desperation that that version of the song brings in it, it's not something you want to listen to in a delicate state <laughs> um, wow it sounds powerful but this version is no less powerful but it's different but it, it just it takes you somewhere different it, it's sad subject matter in a way but it's also it, it's more like a cautionary tale it's not like someone yeah. who's saying my life has gone to shit but it's saying the the dreams that I once had they've not been achievable and there's no easy way down but the feel that Dusty brings to it and that the arrangement gives it is that I haven't quite given up yet that's I don't know that's just my impression how do you how do you yes. oh well this is definitely one of my favorite songs on the album I love how visual the lyrics are mm. um, and you just feel like you're sailing in a big balloon like a hot air balloon yes. over New Mexico and you feel the sunlight and you feel like you're in your all your glory and then you feel like there's somebody that's telling you you know there's you know, this it's not it's not going to be easy. There's definitely going to be uh, points in your life where you're not going to feel this 
you know, this free and powerful and, and wonderful. And so I just feel like the way she delivers it and the lyrics themselves are just so beautiful in its honesty um, that it makes this one of my favorite songs. And I love how she sings the line, we all like to climb to our highest love. It's sort of near the end of the song. Um, she sings it with such spirituality. Mm. Um, and see, there we have, we have, we finally have a song on this album that is not about love uh, and, or, or uh, uh, I feel so terrible because my love went away. Right, right, <laughs> Like this right. is kind of something different, you know, yeah. this is a much larger song than that. Right. No, I, I, I'd highly recommend you search out that uh, Mike Hartzell version yeah. to see whether, what feeling it gives you. Yeah. Um, you know, given that Goffin and King wrote so many songs as a day job from the Brill Building, it'd be interesting to know what their intention for the feel was, you know, because I mean, I guess maybe because they were jobbing songwriters, they probably thought, right, well, here's a song where you do what you want with it, or when they wrote it, what their thought in mind was. Is this a desperate song, or is this a song that's sung in the balloon, the hot air balloon over New Mexico, or was it something completely different? I'd, you really love to know what's in the mind of the jobbing songwriter, you know, once the baby's out yeah. of their hands. Well, you know, I feel like. Carol King did immaculate demos of all her songs. Did you ever hear Pleasant Valley Sunday Sunday by Carol King? Just the demo her, her, her of it? Her version? No, I haven't heard her version. Oh, no. you need to seek that out because her version is a little different than the monkeys version, mm -hmm. but she does all of the backing vocals and everything just perfectly. And it sounds like it's a releasable track the way she wow. did it. Um, but I can almost imagine the way she would have sung it on a, on a demo is probably the way Dusty sang it. I, yeah. I just very straightforward and honest and not changing very much about it. I can imagine the piano sounding just like it does uh, on the actual recording as it would in the demo. I can mm. just imagine it. So I don't think there was anything much that you can change about a song like that. I feel like the subject matter itself is so strong that it kind of dictates the way it's delivered. But the, I guess because this song, this arrangement of it is uh, a lot more lush which is the point I'm trying to make yeah. between this and the Mark Eitzel version. So he, so maybe this is what Carol King intended, and Mark Eitzel thought, right, I'm going to strip this back. Um, yeah. And, and his and that album, 60, 60 Watt Silver Lining, is very much a late night album, late night in a jazz bar. Um, wow. I've just had the okay. worst. Yeah. I've just had the worst <laughs> week of my life. If someone doesn't save me in the next hour or so i don't know what i'm gonna go i'm gonna go home and take a whole bottle of barbiturates or something like that and and this song it lends itself to that interpretation yeah um, that's in, an interesting spin on it yeah yeah yeah. all right so let's move on to um the final song of the official album and because mm -hmm. i know that you've got uh, a couple of bonus tracks i've actually saw like got an edition of the album from rhino which has like about 14 bonus songs. I'm not going yeah, yeah. to go into any of that, but um, yeah. I know that you want to speak <laughs> briefly about a couple of the, the bonus songs in your edition. So, but yeah, the final song of the official album is I Can't Make It Along, another Goffin King tune.
So we've finally gotten to the end of the record and it opened up espousing the joys of morning sex and it ends up with a proclamation by Dusty that leaving her fellow was a big mistake. And there's a lot of that on this album, isn't there? You know, with, so get yourself some confidence, Dusty. Um, once again, there, there are big strings here, you know, uh, and to be honest, as I said, I've, as I've been saying all along, the strings on a lot of the albums sound fairly obtrusive, but unlike Just One Smile, this song is delivered as a soul song. And this is like the opening track on the album, uh, I think the strings actually do work here, and I don't find that they get in the way too much on this, and the strings actually augment the song really, really well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I think so, too. Um, I like the way she delivers the line, there's something in my soul. When she says the word soul, yep. she sounds so sad. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to go, oh, Dusty. Oh, my God, it's a, it's a, a torch song deluxe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, very, oh, just crying out for you know somebody to hold her just um i i'm a big fan of the song well it's interesting because what you say like her delivery of that word and as we've all gone and read in the notes that she was very meticulous with her vocal delivery and she'd be sort of standing in that vocal booth and standing for hours just trying to get the song right but it, it sounds like it comes down to right i need to get this word right can you punch this in not just about getting the overall feel as i need to do something for this for this song lyric yeah Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, the band and the sweet inspirations, as per usual, you know, they deliver the goods as, you know, once again, as Carol King and Jerry Goffin did on the song. You know, once again, with a very simple piano motif, which almost sounds gospel-y. We sort of, there's very little else on this album. I mean, we get touches of soul and touches of that easy listening, but this is the one gospel sort of feel hmm. song on the album, I think. Yeah. But she really yeah. is the star of this song, and she... It brings out the soul diva and sounds uh, more wistful and sexy than particularly desperate at the plight of losing her man, as you know, the song is supposed to actually be about. Yeah, if you notice on the bridge, it actually sounds a little bit more optimistic, like it actually goes into a more uplifting yes. uh, chord progression. Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for a hint of a second, you feel like she's going to be okay. <laughs> Which which but is not, which second. is a nice way to end the album, really. I mean, you've got to listen to these songs where she's said, I don't know what I'm going to do without you. And she's still doing that on this song. But yeah, yeah, musically, it's it's almost like she's saying, well, I don't know what I'm going to do without you, but I'm going to give it a try. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the music really conveys that very well. And her vocal delivery conveys that very well. So she remains the queen of the torch song. <laughs> yes, yes, which is really, in the end how I should have approached this album. It's a, an album of great torch songs. Torch songs, <laughs> yeah. All right, so you wanted to uh, have a, a, a bit of a, a discussion or just talk a little bit about a couple of the songs there that um, are on your, your edition of the CD? Yeah, there are a few that I, I listen to. I, I honestly skip most of the bonus tracks because I too have – the Rhino issued um, okay, right, right. with the 14 track. So um, what do you do when love dies? It's sort of a Petula Clark sounding song to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it almost sounds like it's taken from a Broadway musical. Um, the lyrics are very dark. <laughs> um, but again, she's taking that buoyant approach to the verses. Um, and then I, I noticed it. If you want to listen to this at two minutes and two seconds, you can hear, I think you can hear her clearing her throat. Oh, like you wow. hear it. I'm making, I, I'm making a note about this now. Go and listen to it. Two minutes and two seconds. You can hear her clearing her throat. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so then we move on to Willie and Laura Mae Jones. 
Yes, um, the, the Tony Joe White. So like, I, I, that's very southern. Oh, I feel like I'm in the South. I yes. love the song so much. It just feels so welcoming and so like, like, oh, I love the South. Yes. <laughs> but just the racial equality of it, you know, and just feeling like it just paints a picture of a nostalgic time, you know, that was in the South. And just little keywords like I'll, I'll go pick up some barbecue, you know, things like that really bring the song a lot of color and just bring it to life. And uh, when she says, made me feel so good, when she's talking about how uh, Willie said to her dad when he's playing guitar, hey, you play all right. <laughs> and she goes, made me feel so good. It just makes you just it makes you relive this moment with her. Um, so I love that song for that reason. I, I think um, the information I have here says that this was actually released as a single. So, oh, really? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, to be honest with you, I would love to have heard her doing a whole album of uh, Tony Joe White songs or, or contemporary songwriters of his ilk, uh, just to see what yeah. she'd have done with that. And then she would have ended up with very much a very authentic sounding uh, Southern Soul album. But oh, I, don't know whether, I don't know whether that was what she dug or not. Yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, she was I, maybe. I, I wonder how she felt after this album was done uh, a year later, listening to it. I wonder if she ever came to terms with it. And never felt like she delivered. You know, like I, I just wonder how she felt about it in the end. Well, I mean, the information that I think it said in the uh, the liner notes of the album, or maybe it was on a website that I read, was that for the first year she hated the album, and it took her a year to come <laughs> around to actually listen to it and enjoy it, and then, you know. It was an album that I guess like Pet Sounds took many years for fans to come around, but those fans who had the album, they bought new copies and then more people caught onto it. And now we can't recall a time when the album wasn't revered. Right. But I, I never think that this song will ever be, or this album will ever be in the same uh, category as Pet Sounds. I don't ever feel like it's a revolutionary album to be held up to that standard. Right. Right. But I feel like it lives in its own little world. Like, you need to hold this album and cherish it <laughs> for yes. what it is. Yes. Um, oh, and then there's two other songs I listen to. I skipped sure. all the way down. So let's see, like, I skipped down to, like, number 21. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I listen to Make It With You, um, which is a song written by David Gates. Uh, and uh, it was originally court recorded by Brad. Yes. Um, so I think that was a beautiful song. And I love the way she sings it. Um, and then... I skipped down to probably the saddest song of all the bonus tracks, uh, which is Have a Good Life, Baby. <laughs> mm, <right laughs> and you hear a tack, yeah, you hear like the tack piano, yeah, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. an interesting choice. Um, um, but again, the lyrics are so sad and you're just basically telling, you know, this, you're, you're saying goodbye to the person that you love saying, you know, I know that we can't, we didn't work out, but I hope that whoever you end up with, I hope that you find happiness mm. and it's a sad, sad way to <laughs> say goodbye, but but a she's common. wishing them well over one last sip of wine. So <laughs> you know, <laughs> a common thread through the uh, Dusty Song catalog. Yeah. So yeah, those are the ones I listen to, and most of the the bonus tracks I, I prefer not to listen to because I think that they're just the songs themselves. I'm not a fan of, or I feel like the arrangements didn't work very well in those, those mm. songs, and they're not produced well or mixed well or something. I don't know. But in the, C in the CD age, it's often like you know, seeing the thing is, oh, well, we've got to get the folks to buy it. How do we do it? Oh, we'll add 15 tracks that we didn't yeah. consider good enough to at the time. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I feel like Willie and Laura Mae Jones, I feel like that should have been on the album. Right. You know, I feel, I'm like, yeah, why was no, that not on the proper album? I have no absolutely. idea. That, that's, got a, uh, that's got a real son of a preacher, man. Feel. Yeah, I could have worked. So there you have it. Those are my thoughts on the songs. Well, 
Thank you very much, Shannon Hurley. Um, <laughs> Thank for, you. For discussing Dusty in Memphis by Dusty Springfield. Uh, we're at the end of the program, so what I want to do here is um, just have you tell the listeners out there who uh, liked the song that we played earlier on, if they say, I want to hear more of that Shannon Hurley. I want to hear oh, more sure. of what she does. So how can people find you? Website, where can they order CDs or downloads or any of that sort of thing? Sure. Well, um, I have a website. It's shannonhurley.com. Mm-hmm. And that's all the latest information. It's got all my solo albums on it. For lovers and poets, uh, we have a Facebook page. <laughs> so that's probably the easiest place to find us. Um, it's just Facebook, facebook.com slash lovers and poets. Mm-hmm. And you can find all our music on all available platforms, uh, Spotify, Amazon, CD Baby, <laughs> Bandcamp, right. all that stuff. So. so so, how much do you guys actually play outside of L.A.? Do you ever, do you ever sort of like, you know, go into state? To perform, or you just play around the LA area. I mean, I know that uh, you know Ben's doing a lot of stuff with the LA Soul Project. He often mentions on the show. But do you guys play just around Los Angeles, or do you play? Outside? Yeah, I mean, lately we've been just playing at places like the Dresden Room um, in LA, and you know, just like little French restaurants. Mm. <laughs> um, but I mean, we're open to anything. So if anybody from another city says, "Hey, we'd like to book you for," you know, like a this cool room, we'd, we'd definitely go, but we just, we haven't lately. We've just been sticking around LA, mm. but, uh, we're open to new things. Right. I'll, I'll see if there's any little venues here in Melbourne that, um, you know, yes, <laughs> we would love to come. Oh, we'd love, we're we'd love to have you get, get them to pay your airfare. Don't we? Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> we'll, we'll have, we'll have t-shirts made up and everything. We'll be like Australian tour. Um, <laughs> We'll do, we'll, do, we'll do a cultural exchange. I'll get the ice halos to turn Yeah, sister cities. That's yeah, right. Yeah. All <laughs> right, so there you go, shannonhurley.com or uh, look up Lovers and Poets on Facebook. And if you want to hear uh, Shannon's dulcet tones every week, then you can hear her doing number nine. Number, number eight, nine. Number eight. Oh, that's, that just every week I just revel in, in that. Did, did Ben say, I want you to do it like this? Or did you just no. say, I, I know how I'm going to do it? No, and actually, I had a cold when I was recording all those numbers. <laughs> so I was like, I'm just going to have fun with it. I don't even know what I'm going to do. And yeah. so I just, <laughs> that's just what came out when I have a cold, folks. No, it, it lasted pretty pretty much up until now, you know, close to 200 episodes, and he's still using them. And... That's right, and I still have a cold. <laughs> no, you still have a cold. Uh, all right, so, so thank you so much once again, Shannon, for uh, being part of this. It's been the longest time, and my apologies for not having asked earlier, but this just seemed like such a good fit, and I'm sure it won't be that long before uh, we have you back on the podcast again. My pleasure. I, I would love to come back, so let me know when you want another, like a Graham maybe, uh, <laughs> a Joe Jackson. Yeah, uh, now, we're talking, now we're talking. There you uh, go. <laughs> so, okay, so normally at this stage of the show, I'd announce what it is that we're going to discuss on the next episode. The next episode will be uh, 84. And I can't do that because I don't actually have something firmly planned. I've got three ideas, uh, <laughs> but uh, I've, I've already had two knockbacks for those two ideas. So I tend to like to show, host the show with someone else. But I've got a third possibility I'm waiting to hear from a potential ho- co-host. Uh, it's a mystery so guest. The mystery guest. Uh, well, if, if he comes on, it'll be no mystery. I'll announce it on the books of faces. Until then, I can't actually sort of say that what we have for uh, the November program, 
but uh, I hope, but it'll be it'll be something interesting. I hope. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, but please pass the information on that love that album exists. I'd be most grateful for your uh, uh, for your assistance. You know, I'd like you know, a few more people to listen to the show and say that they dig it. If you uh, want to send me any email to say what you thought about a particular program or even what you think about a particular artist, then email me at rrr kitchen. That's all one word, three R's kitchen. So rrr kitchen at yahoo.com.au. You can join the Facebook group. That's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album and start a music related conversation, anything you like related to music. doesn't have to be about a particular album or a particular style of album that we've covered on the show. Just anything that you're interested about music. Start a conversation. And uh, if uh, you're interested in doing a show with me, hit me up. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a nice guy. I'm friendly. I don't bite. If you want to discuss a <laughs> favorite album with me and think you've never talked about blah. Um, then I'll give it a listen and we'll, we'll talk about it. That's, that's all it takes, folks. You, you ask. I am happy to oblige. Uh, so there you go. That's all the housekeeping details, which Joanne announced at the beginning of the show anyway, but just sort of repeated in case you listened this far. See, Joanne is your numbers girl. Joanne is my numbers girl, but, but she doesn't count down numbers, but she is the announcement. She's the details girl. Details she's, girl. She's details girl. And yeah. I got to, I got to confess, it was your doing the numbers thing that made me think Ben brings Shannon on the show. I've got to bring Joanne on the show. So she's only still I've been doing this for the last few months, but um, awesome. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad we're making it a family event. I, I had my son Max help me out with an early uh, podcast promo. I had Joanne do something. Now I got to figure something for my daughter Amelia to do on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Make it a family affair. Exactly. You know, just like Sly and the Family Stone would have had it. You know, so. It's a family affair. Yeah. It's a family <laughs> affair. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Anyway, no, once again, thanks, Shannon, for uh, being on the podcast. And thanks uh, anyone out there who's uh, listened to the show this far. Much appreciated for your uh, listenership and hopefully future participation if you choose to do so. And until next uh, month, please be nice to each other. Watch some great movies, read some great books, listen to a lot of wonderful music, and let people know that the show exists. We'll speak to you (laughs) next month. All the best. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.